Welcome in. Before we get rolling, I want to tell you about the awesome sponsors. First on the list, we have Pacific Custom Calls. If you're looking for a waterfowl call at all, ducks, geese, cranes, whatever you're after, uh, Pacific Calls have got it. I personally run the uh, 509 Goose Call. Been doing it for a couple years, and I love it. Haven't had any issues with it yet. Uh, the guys over there are awesome. So if you're looking for a new call, you can find them at PacificCustomCalls.com. Uh, search them up, find what you need. If they don't have it, they will soon. Next, we have DuckSeason.com. Uh, this is a website where you can go on, uh, put in your location, where you're at, what you hunt, what you go after, and you can link up with people from across the country and see what they go after, where they're at, and you guys can trade hunts. Uh, it's an awesome deal. If you uh, don't have the money to do a guided hunt or you don't want to have a guide and you just kind of want to do somewhat freelance, this is a uh, great way to do it. So get on there, get signed up. just takes a couple seconds to uh, get your info in there and you're uh, on the list and people can search through your state and find you. And It's a great thing. I'm on it. Look for me there. Maybe we can trade a hunt someday. Now we have Easy Deeks uh, decoy rigging systems, decoy weight systems. They do Texas rigs, timber rigs, whatever you're looking for for your floating uh, decoys or decoy bags or anything like that. They got it there. Uh, check them out. A lot of cool stuff on there. Their website is the letters E-Z-Dekes.com. Um, a lot of cool things on there. Go check them out. Now we got Waylon Johnson and his guide service. He's down in the San Antonio area. He's chasing all sorts of ducks and geese down there along with some fishing. Uh, if you're down in the area looking for uh, some birds or for some fishing, give him a call. His number is 361 494 7868. Now for your decoy needs, you should go check out Big Al's decoys. Uh, silhouettes of about any bird you can think of, he's got on there. Uh, swans, ducks, geese, pigeons, turkeys, and uh, possibly some more cool things in the future. Big things. So uh, if you're looking for some decoys, go check them all out. They got bags and everything on the site. Uh, it's BigAlsDecoys.com. B I G A L S D E C O Y S.com. And on to uh, a custom lanyard site. If you're looking to uh, get a new lanyard, hang your calls on, looking for something to get customized, uh, Landon does a great job. He's at uh, Darkwater Customs. You can find him on Instagram and put an order through him that way, at dark underscore water underscore customs. Get on there, check it out. He does some awesome work. Uh, not just lanyards, he does haulers too. So uh, get after it. Go get him. Go get something cool from him. Now we've got Steady Wing Outfitters. That's Mikey Soberano over in Northeast Kansas. He specializes in waterfowl, turkey, deer. I know for waterfowl season coming up, he's uh, ready and raring to go. So if you're looking for a hunt over in that area, give him a call. His number is 785-410-2304. And last but not least, we have Highline Retrievers. That's my dog training business up here in Northeast Montana. Uh, if you're looking to get your dogs trained, if you're looking for advice... Uh, whatever you need, I'm always available. I'm always uh, willing to help out. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, all the places. And then if you need to get a hold of me, uh, my number is 406-783-7083. Thanks a lot. Thanks to all of our sponsors. And enjoy the show. Well, Covey took wing, shotgun singing, a pointing dog down in the old logging road. And then he got three And looked back grinning I fumbled around And I tried to reload The country was cold Alright, welcome to the Woods and Water Podcast. This is Garrett. 
um, here with a very sick voice, so excuse that if I lose it. I'm with Drew Bayumpa. He's back on. Uh, been on a few times, but for the people that don't know you, why don't you introduce yourself? Drew Bayumpa. I am the better looking, funnier, more charming version of Garrett. <laughs> no joking. No joke. Garrett's dad and my mom, they are brother and sister, so Garrett and I are cousins. We both share the passion for deer hunting, waterfowl hunting, anything outdoors. All right. Where do you live at, Drew? Fargo, North Dakota. That's right. bounced you... around quite a bit, yeah. actually, this last 2023. I started in <clears throat> Minnesota, went to Michigan for eight months. Went back to Minnesota, and now I've landed back in Fargo. And I do not see myself leaving Fargo anytime soon. I like this area. Michigan has a soft spot for me, but this is really the area I want to be as far as it pertains to family, hunting, and just kind of where I feel the most home. So are you going to start deer hunting in North Dakota again then? Dude, definitely. Okay. So I've never – actually, no, that's a lie. I bow hunted a little bit when I was like 16 in North Dakota. But there's something about the big muley racks, the big whitetail racks, and just hunting the different style of hunting of big woods versus like plains deer. And I would like to learn plains deer. That, that's that's really how I would even categorize this year's season was my goal for myself was just to learn, was to go out, put myself in different hunting opportunities, pursue different types of whitetail. I grew up hunting big woods deer. So Anybody who's hunted the big woods and then went over to the plain side can realize that it's it's not totally different, but it definitely is different. Um, so but to be able to learn different things and go out there and try to shoot a big mule deer out west, I would love to do that and just do something different as far as pertains to the style of hunting. Okay. So we'll go with you this year. Uh, we both put in for uh, South Dakota archery only deer tag that was new this year uh that was public land and private land either side of the river archery only uh either sex tag you drew the tag i didn't so you could hunt public or private and then i put in for a different tag after i didn't get that one that was a private land only archery only either sex tag and i got that one but you drew your tag and you actually got out more than me because you're closer to south dakota so I guess, how did it start? When did you first start heading over there to scout or hunt or whatever? Yeah, with work, well, just like everybody else, I mean, if we could hunt all the time, we definitely would. But life comes in the way, work comes in the way, careers come in the way. And at the time, all summer, I was deployed. I was traveling around the U.S., uh, just doing different things for the company I work for. And right at that August time, you know, we had a kind of a big family moment for everybody that kind of slowed everything down. So at that time, that's really when I started, you know, that August time frame is when I really started going out there scouting and just being able to be around. So I bet I only did one scouting trip prior to me actually going out. And then the rest of the time I spent, even though I wish I had more data, um, I spent kind of the velvet season just sitting far, sitting back and just really watching what the deer were doing, what the bucks were doing, you know, trying to figure out, okay, how is this going to change when they go hard antler? Um, 
but yeah, so as, as much as I would say I had a bunch of data going into the season, I really didn't. I only had one. I just kind of rolled with what I had and then pivoted during the season to just learn as much as I possibly could. So where did you sit at to start with? Were you on field edges or were you down in the bottoms or where were you sitting? Yeah, I tried to be as the least intrusive as I possibly could. There's an individual that I follow, uh, Jeff Sturgis. He's on YouTube. He is really more of a big woods guy, but he talks about, you know, human presence and these deer that everybody wants to shoot. Everybody wants to shoot basically 130 and up, right? And uh, 130 and up, that's really when the deer are smart. They're, they're a total different animal. They, and they all have different personalities too. But the one thing that they have in common is they want food, they want bed, and they don't want to be around predators. So what I try to do, because I didn't really know the land, um, we're, we're referring to my uncle's property here. He's got a, about a thousand acre ranch. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to be intrusive. I didn't want to be the person that was fumbling around, you know, breaking every stick and just being a nuisance out in these woods. Um, so I sat real, real high up on different hilltops and I was looking down on 40s that he owned. So I would sit up real high. I would get there out there really early in the morning and I would walk too. Um, where I was parking my vehicle, I was parking my vehicle probably a mile away in pasture and then walking through the pasture, through the gates and sitting high up, eating myself next to hay bales, just being at a vantage point where I could see a lot of different things happening. And then after I would see the deer do something or I would see the deer consistently in a spot, I would ask that question of why. Um, and then once I asked that question of why I could figure out that why, then I would move in a little bit more see more, gather more information, ask that question of why, move in, see more. And eventually I got to a point where I could really see that these deer love to run between these two saddles, um, where they ran between these two coolies, basically. It's where two coolies came together, real high top ridge. I saw multiple deer run. It was going to work really good for when we started switching to get more of those north winds as it started to get colder. Before you so keep going, I kind of chose you're going to confuse people because I've already been asked this before. What the heck's a coolie? Because I've said that before. You say draw or a ravine or I don't know what else they call them, a cut. Yeah. I don't know. What? Different parts of the country, they call them different things. But like John Bree said, what the heck is a coolie? When I said that one time, so draw, cut, ravine, whatever you want to call it. But So that's what you say when there's two coolies and they're in a saddle between them. That's what it is. Like big cuts mm-hmm. in the ground, trees down the bottom, usually a creek going through the bottom. Yes. Okay. And they get carved out deeper and deeper and deeper from these cricks because the, the crick cuts it, it carries all the sediment out, and it goes wherever. I don't know where they end up going. This but one's it going into the Red River. lower and lower. Say it again? That should be going in the Red River, shouldn't it? Probably. Because it's downhill going into there. But anyways, yeah. Keep going. Yeah, so eventually uh, I just noticed that the deer love to travel, and I set myself up in an oak tree that splayed into four. And that was really where I set up home base. And just to be respectful of my um, you know, cousin Garrett here and then also my uncle and my other cousin Austin, I kind of chose that to be my home tree because I wanted to be as intrusive, um, the least intrusive as I, as I could be, but also get the most opportunity and also just respect the land, not bump deer. It was an area that I was deep in the woods, but I did not, I hardly left any sign when I went in and out. And with a north wind, I could walk right down where my scent trail would be, and it was clean to my tree. And if the wind was going to be a hard west, I had a different path that I could go in where 
when I was sitting in the tree, my my scent would be blowing down the trail I would walk in. So I would walk in that way. So, so you didn't have like I chose two places for the deer to smell you. Exactly. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I was very vigilant every single day about how the wind was blowing, you know, where we were going, where I was going, and what my plan was. Ultimately, Garrett, we both know that human intrusiveness, uh, even though it might have been low on my end, wasn't low on everybody's end. But uh, I really chose to pro- control what I could control with it all. Yeah. 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 You parking a mile away and walking in, family members thought you were absolutely insane for doing that when you could drive right down the edge of the draw and just walk 100 yards. <laughs> and I saw a lot of deer doing that. I saw a lot of deer. Another thing that I really kind of adapted to this year was I call it kind of like a slow step. So when you ever hear a doe, it's, it's especially does, you'll hear them take one, two, three, four steps, and then they'll do that hard, not the stomp, but it's like a hard stop where you'll hear them walk and they'll stop. And normally that's when they're feeding. And uh, what I consistently started to do is when I would access these stands is I would do that slow walk. And the one day... I was kind of doing it and I'm like, I feel like this is just ridiculous. I feel like, you know, I'm wasting my time, but I, to me, I also kind of felt like it might be doing something. And as I was walking in, I hit the mouth of basically the top of a hill and I just stopped, took three steps, stopped. And I was just waiting. I waited for probably a minute about before I would start my walking again. And in that waiting, all of a sudden I saw a doe just pop up out of nowhere. I was like, whoa, like it kind of scared me. So I was looking at this doe and she's kind of looking where I kind of am, but she's not, she can't really pinpoint me because she was laying down when she initially heard me. Uh, and she just kind of walks away. I was like, okay, that was kind of cool. I didn't scare nothing. The wind again is blowing in my face. So she can't smell me. I go eventually get to my tree, just continue to slow step. And it wasn't 15 minutes after I got in that tree, that same exact doe came back and laid right back down right where she was before. So I mean, you can say, no, it doesn't work. But for me, at least it worked that day of just being cautious and just really going in slow. So how long did it take you to get all the way to your stand then every day or were you, the tree? 15, 20 minutes. That's not bad. So you if were just was, starting it right when you got to the draw then? Yeah. So the whole mile walk, no, because a lot of this is pasture. Like it's my, it's not miles, but yeah, it's. I was going to start making fun of you if I would have saw you out there walking three steps and stopping for a minute, just looking around out there in the pasture in the wide open. Yeah, I got especially you. on Johnny's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how – I guess your first set when you decided to start going to that tree, how many times had you been around? Was it just that one time before you decided on that tree or how long did it take for you to figure out that one tree? I did four sets. <laughs> I did four sets before I really decided to go to this tree. Again, I slowly kind of worked my way in, not knowing this is, if you know an area, obviously I wouldn't do this, but this is me totally learning a new area, trying to be, you know, not intrusive, just going slow. And I had a lot of time. I knew I had a lot of time. I was going into a season of work where I was working remotely. So I was able to be in the woods a lot and just learn. So I just kind of want to see what deer naturally did without me being there. And, uh, I did three sits on a very, very straight, very, very straight. Um, this tree had like no limbs, it looked like a telephone pole. <laughs> and it had, I don't, I don't even know how it was alive. Maybe it wasn't, but sat in it. And then it was like day after day, I just keep seeing these bucks that were running 
through this group of three evergreen trees, and then they would turn at that splayed oak tree. And obviously people do sit in evergreens, but I have never attempted to sit in an evergreen. Um, I hunt with a saddle system. So I don't think that would work very well. Again, someone probably would prove me wrong, but yeah. So I just kept seeing it happen over and over again. You know, I would see five, six, seven deer a day and every single one of them I was seeing going right through there. So that's the side, that's where I decided to really make my home base. And with that data, um, I was really able to just be confident on like the days when like, oh, I feel like I need to move or I feel like I need to do something different. I would just remember like, no, this is how the deer were moving. I can see the historical tracks. And uh, I really adapted the mindset of don't chase deer when there are deer that have went through there. Um, What I really didn't want to do was just go try and find something totally different just for a deer to walk by that same tree. So I just tried to stay as consistent as I could. And then you just knew that time would come. I got you. Mm-hmm. Like you were saying, you did as little movement and minimalist stuff, like keeping your scent and everything down as you could. But you can't say that's true for everybody in the area. Right. Same thing with moving the no. stands. Yeah. Yeah. We have a, this, this is kind of a more of a family story, but Garrett and I, we have a very, very passionate grandpa who loves to bow hunt. Uh, he's definitely somebody who is an influence on why Garrett and I do what we do and why we do it so much. But in his older age, he doesn't see very well. He doesn't have as much patience and he's <laughs> done it with both me, Garrett and I, where he's moved stands on us or he will say he's hunting a certain area. And then next thing you know, he'll be driving under your four under your stand, like asking what you're doing, you know, where you think he should go after, if you want to ride back to the house and it's one of those things where we love grandpa so much and we appreciate all he does but (laughs) yeah it would be better if it'd be better if uh i don't know because you don't you don't want him not hunt but it's like grandpa if you just leave our stuff alone it'd be fine that's the only thing (laughs) but yeah he moved one on me in college i had it set up i had a perfect trail had everything perfect and then like I set up that weekend and then we got off. It was like over Thanksgiving or something. So I got off like on Wednesday or Thursday raced down there at noon. I was going to get up there before dark, got there, got to my tree, no stand. I'm like, I know it's my, I know this is the tree my stand was in. I got the limbs cut and everything for my shooting pass. I know this is it. I don't know where it's at. So I just sat there and sure enough, the deer came along and buck and everything. And I was sitting there on the ground with no cover or anything. And they saw me and spooked off, but then he had moved it down the draw, like a hundred yards or something. Cause he thought there was a better tree for me, which he was, he thought there was a better tree for me, but whatever. What is that saying? High insights 2020. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, yeah. he's, he's in a lot of cool stuff though, too. He's built this great bows, you know, you know, Garrett hunts with his, I would like to get in hunting with mine. Um, I have not dedicated myself to learn the long bow and to learn traditional archery yet. So one day I would love to be able to take a, a take a deer with my hunting bow as well. But yeah, with, with the season, though, how it kind of all transpired was with me kind of sitting on that hilltop, there was one buck that I saw twice. And I slowly kind of inched my way in. And the more I was inching my way in, I saw him again. And then I inched my way in farther than I saw him again, you know. And what it was is he was about a big, he was a big 10-point. And I'm really bad with scoring, you know, especially when they have velvet on. I have no idea how big they are. But I saw him twice in velvet season. 
And I was like, dang, this deer is big. And I, I wanted this deer bad. And this, this was why I stayed in the area that I stayed in was because I, I consistently saw this deer just not right in front of me. <clears throat> and the times that I did see him was actually right where that oak tree was that I eventually hunted in. So that's something like, okay, this is where I'm going to hunt. But, uh, yeah, there was a day where the wind wasn't right. So I did not want to go and sit under that. I didn't want to sit in my tree where this, this deer I had seen go by. So I sat about 50 yards away thinking, okay, maybe he'll take a different path, but I know I'm safe with the wind. And sure enough, that was probably my closest encounter with him was him at 50 yards, uh, hard antlered. He had just dropped his velvet, real big, nice 10 point came through, couldn't get a shot. Uh, just too far, you know, happened too quick and, uh, didn't really want to make something happen that I didn't need to have happen. And I had a lot of season at the end of the time. So I really, really, that, that was the driving force for that deer. And again, with hunting, you have so much influence from other people, different opinions on what you should do. And I think those opinions are good, but I also think you need to remember what is your goal and what you set out to do. And I really wanted to kill that deer. I wanted to let the season be a season of me learning and let the season be of me kind of having my influence on stuff and seeing, Hey, what would happen if I chose to do what I wanted to do, you know, in respect to other people. And uh, so I continued to hunt out there. And even though you hear, yeah, I heard, I saw a big buck over here. I saw a big buck over there. I chose every day to go to that stand. And eventually that big 10 point kind of went away. And, uh, you know, I, like I said, I, I saw him over and over again. But the later in the season it went, the least I saw him. And my first encounter with a pretty nice shooter was eight point. I chose not to shoot him because, um, again, I was really hoping to get that 10 point. Fast forward maybe a week later, I had a real nice eight point. Um, I think he was actually maybe even a nine and pulled back on him. Grunt stopped him, and when I uh, pulled back on him, he was actually walking. And here I was looking through the peep along with looking at my sight, and I, I should have been watching the deer and not looking through my sight because he got a little farther ahead than what I was planning. When I grunt stopped him, I thought I was farther forward on his body. Shot, I hit high back, like very high, very back. And uh, instantly, the moment I shot him, I just felt a horrible, horrible feeling in my gut. And of course, it's like when it rains, it pours. As I was going to grab another arrow to try to hit him again, quiver falls out of the tree. I'm up there with a bow, arrowless. I have a deer in front of me who is hit. He is kind of just standing there. He ran about 50 yards, kind of hooked back around to about 40 and uh, just kind of standing there, not knowing what went on. Right. And, uh, very, very little blood. I saw this deer in the coolie. The, co the deer stayed in the coolie with me for about an hour. And actually, near the end of that hour, he started eating. And uh, eventually, he kind of walked out and went to the top of the hill. And as soon as he went to the top of the hill, I waited about another half hour, got down slowly, and went to leave because I was just trying to get out of there, let him do his thing. And hopefully, I could find him piled up, you know, in the one of the adjacent draws or adjacent wood lines and went out course as i'm leaving i see him in the field he sees me and he runs off into a section of woods 
I'm like, okay. Luckily, this section of woods is totally an island. There's no other woods around it. It's all pasture. It's it's a lot, a lot, a lot of pasture. So I hooked way around, let him lay down there for the night, went back the following day, um, kind of mid-morning, did a really, really slow walk through there, and no blood, no deer, nothing. And uh, really with me hitting him high, like that and then seeing him eating really kind of gave me confidence that maybe he wasn't as hurting as bad as you know he should have been and uh the shot wasn't lethal and i'm almost certain that's going to be a deer that he's fine he didn't uh he's gonna live more or less especially with how easy he was running around and more or less kind of gave me a lot of anxiety a lot of gut hurt but the deer was fine as far as i could tell so lesson learned i guess always don't just look at the peep as a deer is walking, but, you know, readjust your eyes and then put your point of aim back on the deer. How close was he? So he was a 35 yard shot. Mm. Yeah. So the chip shot, right? Something sure. that I should be able to hit, especially with the compound, but lesson learned. We're not all perfect. And, uh, what do you do? Right. <laughs> so after him, then when was this, this was in October. Or was this still in September? This was October. Yep. Okay. Yeah. The, the first big buck I passed was in September. I shouldn't say big buck. First shooter buck I shot, I, I passed was in September. This buck was, uh, I think it was the Halloween weekend. Cause this was right when that huge national cold front came through. This was the week I saw him. Okay. Yep. And then pivoting off of them, I kind of had that low point, but after really kind of talking it through with other people and getting some wise counsel and, you know, talking of his mannerisms of him eating, you know, after the shot and, him also eating again in that that big, uh, it'd be like a hay field. Um, kind of put some confidence in me of like, okay, lesson learned. Don't do it again. You know, don't mess up. Uh, but ultimately, the deer is fine. We're going to continue to go out there and we're going to hunt. So, again, I stayed consistent with that big oak tree. By the end of the season, I'm not going to lie, you could see where I would put my hand every single day to go into the oak tree, where my knees would sit uh, when, like, I wanted to rest from standing in the saddle. I had, like, beveled them out almost like a little bowl. <laughs> No bark. It was clean, man. I, I looks like I sanded it off, <laughs> but <clears throat> it was actually Thanksgiving weekend was when I was able to really go out and hunt hard again. Uh, I had seven days. Garrett was coming out. It was kind of one of those things where it's like, okay, new page, new chapter. We're going to have some fun and started hunting the week. And it was kind of one of those things where it's like, dang, I don't know. I feel like I'm just going to eat take soup. You know, I, I, not going to get the deer I wanted to shoot. And it was a, the day after Thanksgiving sitting up in that big Oak tree. Um, I was actually thinking about getting down. It was mid morning, um, kind of creeping into the afternoon. And, uh, just kind of sitting there, kind of just, you know, pondering like, dang, this sucks. Feeling sorry for myself. And next thing you know, I look up, I see antlers just like, hauling the mail towards me so of course i get ready and it's like cold cold it's i think it's garrett hunted that week i think it was what two three four degrees i don't know it's cold it was cold that wind chill uh, sucked and it was still humid so it was really really cold it was terrible yeah it was, it was really cold so i'm like struggling to take my mitten off can't get it off can't get it off eventually i just like kind of one of those things where it's like you got to make amazing happen right so i just bite my mitten just rip it out with my, like, rip my hand out, spit the mitten out on the ground, 
grab my bow because he's behind these evergreen trees, these three evergreen trees I talked about earlier. <clears throat> I rip back. As soon as I rip back, he's back in the open. I'm like, okay, perfect. He didn't know I was there. And uh, I heard from, there's a group of guys I follow. They're like, oh, you got to use this sniffle technique if you don't want to, uh, you know, scare the deer. So I go, and I'm like sucking with all my might. And this deer is not stopping. So I go, just whistled at him and dead stop. And I've also heard that when you know you double on a deer good, you hear like this pop sound. And I lined it up. And of course, this deer is standing exactly where I missed that other buck, where he I hit him high and back. So my mind's going like, oh, like, do not screw this up. Do not screw this up. And kind of having all those feelings of like that situation awareness of this is where the deer was last time. You know, don't F it up. I pull the shot or I shoot. Didn't pull the shot. I hit him clean. And as soon as I hit him, I heard that instinctual, like that, like it was loud. Like it was louder than my bow going off of that arrow hitting his lungs. And um, yeah, I popped him. I saw the deer run down the hill and I could just see his tines. So I quickly, I pulled my binos up and I'm looking at his tines. I see him kind of waver and I thought I saw him run. So I waited about a half hour, but I heard that pop. So I'm like, gosh, I feel good about it. So I waited a half hour and I got down off my stand and I walked. I just walked real, real slowly, just like I was talking about what I do with those does or how I walk like a doe, taking three, four steps, waiting, taking three, four steps, waiting. And I got to the point where I had shot and I could see him laying down on the, the bottom of the draw. Um, he's down laying in the creek. So I'm somebody where I'm colorblind. I Very colorblind. I don't, I don't see blood. <laughs> uh I really, really, really have to look and I actually have to, like, if, if I see blood, I have to like, pick it up off the ground. I have to like, wipe it on my hand in order for me to kind of tell if it is or isn't blood. Um, but yeah, if I put it in a natural setting, I cannot see blood. And I looked for blood and I didn't really see any blood because I was really trying to find my arrow. Couldn't find my arrow, but took the deer, gutted it down in the creek, washed them out in the creek. It's kind of actually pretty cool. It was freezing out, but like just acting like a caveman and like, you know, <laughs> washing them out in that natural spring water made me feel like, oh yeah, I know what I'm doing. Right. And uh, hauled them out. And again, this was a season where I wanted to, you know, do everything myself. So this deer was more than big and uh, I had a mile walk. Right. So luckily I didn't have to drag him a mile, but I had to drag him probably 500 yards out of that creek and up the side of the hill. And that sucked. I, I definitely showed I was out of shape, <laughs> <laughs> especially putting them up them steep hills, man. Oh, that sucked. But uh, Garrett, you can tell them too. Garrett went by the day later, and this just shows how colorblind I am. But what it, you said, you found blood. Yeah, yeah. Well, I knew what tree you'd shot him out of because I, <clears throat> I've been in that bottom a lot, and I hunted it back in college and everything, so I kind of knew it. And it's the only three pine trees down in there together, and there's a great big oak next to them. So I knew what tree you were in when you said I was in the big oak by the pine trees. And you said it was like a 35-yard shot, and so just looking at it, I could pretty much just kind of suss out how where he roughly would have been based on the pine or pine trees and the oak tree and everything. And so I went over there, and I looked, and it was like a two-foot-wide swath of blood in the grass. It, it was like a red river trail running straight away. So we found where you shot him pretty quick. Me and Austin went down in there because we were trying to figure out a spot to put my stand, and we were going to look for your arrow and stuff, and yeah. It was very obvious blood, so it kind of blew my mind that you couldn't see it. Couldn't at least see that because it was, it was very large. Yeah. So that that kind of 
I've, I've told myself too, like, no, I, I'm probably not colorblind or, you know, I probably see the same thing as everybody else, but you don't. After hearing something like that, I'm like, okay, I'm blind as a bat. Well, I was watching <laughs> during Thanksgiving there. I stayed while well, I was staying at grandpa and grandma's and we were watching football and grandpa's got the same color blind as you. And I can't remember what team it was, but they're a red team and playing on that gr- uh, green field. He was having a tough time seeing the other team. So it's like, I'm watching one team and ghosts out there tackling them. <clears throat> yeah. Color blindness is weird. You know, when you kind of get like those artificial colors. So for example, I'm on my laptop right now and I can look at the Chrome icon and I see red, green, yellow, blue. So those are all, you know, very distinct, they have been manipulated so you can see them like a very natural color, similar to like a crayon box. You can lay out the crayons and it's pure yellow. It's pure green. It's pure purple. It's pure blue. But when you put yourself in a natural setting where those colors are naturally um, vibrant, holy crap, I am blind. <laughs> For people that talk about things around me, I'm like, especially when they're using colors to describe them, I am so lost. And I really have to use like context clues and kind of like, you know, assume a lot of times, most times I'm right, <laughs> but yeah, you, you get, you get caught in a smile. And that was definitely a, a moment for me. I was like, dang. So when you look up big coolie in the fall time, when the leaves are changing, there's orange and red and yellow and green and brown and all the different colors up in there. You can't see those different ones or what? So colors are a weird thing, right? Like I, I can't, I can't explain to you what the color, color yellow looks like. And you really couldn't vice versa to me. So I still claim that I see orange, red, brown, yellow, all of those colors, but I know that I don't see them the same way you do. They're just what I, my depiction of them are, you know? So to say that, you know, you see something more vibrant than I do, I don't know. Cause I would still say the fall is a beautiful time. You know, it's the time that I really like to be out in the woods and just look at scenery. But uh, yeah, I have no idea what you would see. And I don't think you would know what I would see vice versa or really a way for us to figure that out. So to say I don't see the color, I think any person that says, oh, I can't see this specific thing. I think they're kind of lying because how would they ever know? You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? How would they ever know? Because they still see something. It's not like, you know, for example, if you're colorblind to yellow, it's not like everything yellow is just like disappearing from you. Just like Garrett said, with the mixing of colors, it can make it confusing. But you know so there's i don't know that's that's a hard one to answer really i've always struggled to answer that question yeah i got you but all in all though pulling that deer out and being able to bring it back home bring it to my grandpa and to like you know put up under the tree finish gutting it out wash it out a little bit more it was pretty awesome to just like do it with grandpa do it with grandma you know get to drive home tell them the story and uh First thing grandpa says, because as soon as I shot the deer, I texted my mom. I didn't want her to know I shot the deer, but I was like, hey, just let grandpa and grandma know that I'm going to sit all day long. But I wanted to be kind of like a, a surprise for them and, you know, for them to be like, oh, like he did it. You know, he, he's bringing the buck home. So drove home. And first thing grandpa tells me is you could have called for help. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. It was I would not have done it a different way. I really wanted to do it myself. And uh even though I was extremely tired afterwards, it was well worth it. Yeah. You didn't even wait for me to shoot your deer. You had to wait until I was on the way, halfway there. You didn't even hardly tell me or anything. That was rude. Yeah, I got to the top of the hill, and Garrett goes saying something. I was like, yeah, I shot mine. and I don't know. I shot mine. <laughs> rude. Well, I think about, too, because like I've shot not a pile of deer in South Dakota, but I think I've got two. 
Both of them are does, yeah. Anyways, <clears throat> both whenever I brought them back to the yard, I just thought about all the hundreds and hundreds of deer that have been shot and brought to that yard. Like you look at the all the old Polaroids and all the old pictures of my dad and our uncles and grandpa and everybody else hanging deer up there with tractors and in those trees and everything. So makes me think of that. It's kind of like the history of it. <clears throat> How many deer have been hung yeah. up there and cleaned out and everything. And this is an area too. So this is kind of to circle back and around big woods versus plains deer. This is definitely plains deer. This is an area where, you know, even though my uncle's got a thousand acres of ranch, you could probably guarantee, probably say that what 800 of it is, is pasture. Yeah. Most you know? of it's pasture. And, and then the rest of it is, uh, flatland, like farming ground. And then there's just draws mixed in that we're lucky. Yep. He owns part of the, like he owns a field and in part of that, he owns the draw too. <clears throat> yep. And then, or it's like an edge or it's, you know, it's, it's very much, Everything has as cow influence on it, which is nice because you don't have to trim as many shooting planes because mm -hmm. the cows just walk everything down. <laughs> but uh, you know, to say that you know, even though we say a thousand acres, when you really put in put it in to like retrospect, if you compare that to big woods, I mean, maybe what only eighty acres of true woods that he would have, mm -hmm. if that. Maybe. And like we were both hunting on a forty anchor chunk, and it's surrounded by land that we can't hunt native land so you also don't yeah. want to spook them out of there because there's not much mercy once they get off randy's land and onto that native land no there's not there's really isn't you know so that's that's kind of where it goes back in the intrusiveness of <clears throat> you know they hey they know that the the private land um normally don't get pressured right so trying to really really hold to let them at least feel like they're not getting hunted um that's really what we both preached that's really what we both tried to do. <laughs> Not saying that's what happened, <laughs> but you know, yeah. Hey, you gotta, you, you gotta, you really gotta focus on what you can control, especially those big deer. Okay, so <clears throat> what is your plan now next year for South Dakota? Are you planning on going again? Yeah, definitely. You know, we have really good relationship with with Randy, our uncle, and you know, we really are blessed to be able to hunt his land, but. <clears throat> What I would like to do is, I think what everybody should do too is repay Randy back in some way, right? So, or whoever that person is for you. So, even though he's a rancher, I do know that Randy likes meat, right? Even though he's got ample meat, I went out and I made sure to get him some, you know, nice porterhouses, you know, something clean, something nice, something he doesn't have to process, worry about. So, you know, kind of repaid him back in that way. And then I really want to go out there and then also help out in some way too, because it's one thing to say, Oh, Hey, thank you. And then just assume that, you know, they feel the They're same good. way with you, but go out there mm. and, you know, be, be willing to help fix fence, you know, work cattle, especially during the calving season, that can be a really rough time. And, you know, people, they prefer to have extra help if they can. So just, you know, letting them know that, Hey, I'm willing and able to help. And then just even putting myself in situations where I can help. You know, maybe when they don't uh, ask for it. So that's kind of the next step is just really showing Randy the, the appreciativeness of us being out there and uh, kind of, you know, paying it forward, you know, for, you know, what he was able to do for Garrett and I. And then uh, after that, definitely getting more summer data. That's something I didn't have. That's something I wasn't really able to do this last year. But now that I'm, you know, working more, more remotely and kind of wrapping up some of these projects out east, I'll be more focused on 
you know, just doing what I want to do, you know, in the, in the Midwest. So get some cameras out earlier and then kind of figure out what those summer patterns are because to shoot some of those deer in velvet, man, those would be nice deer. Mm. The deer I shot was a very nice deer. You know, it wasn't the biggest deer in the woods and I'm not going to say, Oh, blah, 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 blah. You know, I took it, you know, because whatever reason I shot it because it was fun to shoot him. Yeah. Uh, he's you maybe happy about it. Made you happy. Inch. Yeah. Right. I got the shakes. I ripped him. Uh, but yeah, he was a, probably a hundred, 110 inch seven point. He's a mainframe eight, Mrs. Brow time. So what do you do? Right. But no, I, I, I love to shoot him, but talking about setting up goals. And if, if I really want to shoot a big buck in velvet, putting those cameras out early, you know, getting that summer data, you know, working with Randy again to, you know, build that good relationship and keep that good relationship. And plus they're just fun people to be around anyways, and they deserve the help as well. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's really what I would do different. It's, it's not a property that I have influence on, like for say, example, Minnesota, my dad, he's got some land in Minnesota that I have heavy influence on. Randy, you can decide what you're going to influence. You're going to cut and trim, put up stands, food plots, whatever. Plots, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a land we're totally just re- restoring right back to natural woods. So, but yeah, you know, controlling what I can can control, and you know, getting that camera data is one of those things. And then uh, there's plenty of them to eat out there. So planting a food plot in the prairies, especially when there's all the alfalfa cuts happening and all those hay field cuts happening. You know, they have ample food where big woods where I'm hunting, you know, they don't have all of those um, browse in the, especially in the summertime, right? Cause they really love those acorns. They're, they're kind of transitioning more into the crop side of things. But if I want to keep those big deer in the big woods, especially some of the areas that I like to hunt on my dad's, you know, high stem count deer don't want to walk through high stem count with, you know, big velvet racks on. So we're, you know, purposely trying to find those areas where it's big stem, where our stands are, but also kind of on the edge. So we can shoot maybe some early season deer out there. So that's, that's kind of for another time, but yeah, for South Dakota, paint it forward, getting that data and then just, you know, really, really being thoughtful on, okay, what is the data telling us to do? Now let's go take action on the data instead of just saying, oh, hey, I hung this tree here. I saw this deer last year in November. I think a, a, a buck is a total different animal in September versus mid-November. Yep. You know, they, they have total two different things in their mind, you know, different hormones, everything. Once they drop their velvet, they're a totally different animal. Oh, man, they are. It's it's night and day. The ambassador groups, they break quick once, that, once the, the, they become hard antlered. Yeah. See, that's what it kind of makes me jealous. So it's a double-edged sword. So you get, since you're living in Fargo, you're close enough that you can go down and help. And you got all the scouting data and everything. Like you got to go there just like for weekends. And see, it's different. You're close and you're single and you have a job where you can work remotely. I'm a John Deere mechanic, so I have to be here. I got a family and I'm nine hours away. So I don't mm-hmm. I don't get to quite just decide I'm going to do a three-day weekend and go hunting or scouting or whatever. So that's what hurts me. Like it's a big handicap on that. But mm-hmm. <clears throat> there was a this summer or this last spring summer when we were trying to figure out a place, a house we could buy and everything like that. We were very close to moving down there just because we couldn't find anywhere to live here at all. Like there's no place we could buy, but 
I was on the edge of it, and I thought hunting-wise, that'd be awesome, because I'd love, I love hunting the whitetails, I want to get back in tree stand hunting, I want to do all this stuff, and then I started thinking about, well, how much land do you actually get to hunt there, how much public land is there actually in that corner, if you're there, it's not like you get to hunt that all the time, like, it's gonna be the same as here, you only get so many days a year, because my busy time of the year is during hunting season, and then I'm giving up my Montana residency, where I got over-the-counter deer and elk tags for $20 a pop, or whatever they are, and I got a pile of public land, and I can always come back here and just hunt on the holidays like I've been doing and then have Montana. So there was, it was real close there though. If we wouldn't have found or got this house, there was a good chance we would have been moving back that way. But it it's, I wish we were closer so I could go there, help more scout and do it. Cause I want to do it. I want a tree stand hunt and whitetail. Like I miss it a lot, but I can't give up hunting Montana as a resident for it by any means at all. Yeah. Just because of the uh, amount of different animals I get to hunt here too, so I think that's the power. So obviously we're cousins, but not to be weird, but that's where the power of like the true friendship comes in, though. Too, you know, we we're Go related team. by blood, but we we, cho- we choose to be friends. And whether we're deer hunting, waterfall hunting, whether you, uh, I got watched a video last night of these guys who were down in Georgia and they're pulling these Georgia and Florida, and they're pulling these great big anacondas out of these holes, right? But it's the power of networking and then being transparent with those those people that you choose to run with. And I think that uh, for myself as somebody who's colorblind, <clears throat> right, I need to rely on other people in order to even attract my deer. So if I don't have somebody that I, like a good person I can call to get, you know, wise influence or to come out and track a deer, I probably should be looking at myself of like, hey, you know, how am I choosing to spend my time into you know, what is this sport to me? Is this sport just something where it's like, hey, I'm really selfish in it and I don't really care about anybody else. But ultimately, no, that's not how I do it. So I do have people that I can talk to, I can rely on. And even though you live in Montana, I'm here in the central area, you know, it's something where I can help support you and helping you get your goals as far as it pertains to South Dakota, you know, and shooting those big deer. Well, and you, you it's did the same too, because too. like I had no clue going in. I said, where should I go? And you said, well, I'd probably go down there. I've been seeing deer. This is the area I've been seeing them in. And it's not like you told me go sit right here because you wanted me to make my own decisions too. But you pretty much just gave me the info. Yeah, I have been seeing them down here. There's a chance you'll see them. And that's about all I could do. And that was on me too. Like I was down there in the summer. I could have brought cameras down and set them up and everything too. But mm-hmm. I didn't. That's on me. But this summer when we come down for our – we always go down at least once during the summer <clears throat> to visit family. Yeah. So I'll bring I'm some more cameras and – maybe set them down in there figure out an area and i would like to try to branch out more than just that bottom down there that 40 and try a couple of other yep. areas just because like if we have wind come in from different area or if you know other influences such as pressure that we didn't put on it give it a day or two of rest have somewhere else to go for the little bit of time that i do get to get back there so i would like to the this big, summer do some more spots the big thing that plays too is the cattle you know we don't always think of the cattle, but deer deer can either love they either love to be with cattle or they hate to be with cattle. It all depends on the personality of that deer, you know. So for us to say there's a, and nobody knows what we're talking about here, but say we're talking about Johnny's forty versus Uncle Chris's, right? Mm-hmm. There might be a buck on Uncle Chris's that we see, and we might not see any deer on Johnny's. But if we they move the cattle to Uncle Chris's, there's a pretty good possibility that that deer. If it doesn't like to have that cattle pressure around it, that cattle influence, it's going to move out of that draw. It's going to go into Indian land or it could end up going to Johnny's. So 
Yeah, I agree with you too. It's there's a pretty good chance that with especially with the cattle influence that what we hunt this year, we won't hunt next year because of that cattle influence. We have to pivot to something else or, you know, try something else. Yeah. Well, cool. That was South Dakota. So, yeah. And that was your first buck with a bow, right? That's how you said. First buck with a bow? Everything you ever dreamed of? Dude, huge adrenaline rush. I will continue to... I'm somebody where to say, oh, I'm only going to hunt with a bow now. I think that would be a lie. But I would say it's way more fun to shoot something with a bow than a gun. I'm still going to shoot stuff with a gun because I'm a... I like to call myself a killer. I, I want to go out there. I want to hunt. You know, I appreciate all the little things that happen, but at the end of the day, I really want to get it done and I'm going to mm-hmm. use whatever means I can to do it. Whatever the laws are. If, if I could bait, I'm going to bait, right? If I can use a gun, I'm going to use a gun. Uh, but being able to go out there, utilize the season to hunt bow, I would say it's definitely my favorite thing to do. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. My first buck of the bow is the same thing. The adrenaline rush was something else. I was such a disaster. I tried calling my dad, talking to him. He couldn't understand me. So I had to call my friend to come help me. <laughs> he came out and in the process i lost a flashlight and i lost my release and everything never did find either of those it was i was a mess it was awesome though but you only get your first one once that's right all right well why don't we call this one for now then we got about 48 minutes of recording so Mm -hmm. we'll do that and then if you want we can do minnesota now how that went and the differences and stuff Mm -hmm. Okay, let me stop this one here.